Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna and right next to me on the screen is Rebecca and we are here to have our author chat with Wayne Arthurson. Yay! Am I going next, Shauna? Am I ready? Okay. Anyway, well, we're really excited that you are joining us today for, or this evening for a really special event, because as you may remember, about a month and a half ago, we interviewed Wayne for our podcast, and now we got him to chat with us uh, visually, which is a really fun thing to do. Um, for those of you who have read either the Leo DeRoche series, which is, I'm telling you, the most underrated <laughs> series ever, please, please read it if you haven't, but also- Rebecca will talk to you for three months about it, almost daily. So, okay, that's true. I'm afraid that Leo lives with me forever now because I can't, I can't let go of him. But anyway, all better your head than my head. <laughs> Absolutely. And the best thing right now is the Red Chesterfield, which is an award-winning book. So please, I'd like everybody to welcome Wayne Arthurson to our program this evening. Wayne, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming from all over the world to uh, participate. It's great. And I should notice to our, our, our friend in France that the Leo's book, Leo books will be released in French. I know. Um, I think starting this, um, this spring, I think. As this spring? So, yeah. because I believe so. I, yeah, still like, yes. so. I hope so, because I'm, you know, I'm sharing, sharing it with my friends, but they don't read English. So they're really Thank like... No. saying Great. what are you Thank talking you. about like we want to read in french so yeah oh, so to be i think this spring well it's covid is a little different we'll see yeah. what happens but i i sold all three of them too for french translation so they're coming out soon <laughs> So what the way we're going to do this today is Shauna wanted this to be a real free flow event, which I agree with. And so we just we're just going to kind of open it up to everybody to ask questions. We are going to have Electric kind of ask the first question because she is joining us from France today and it is 1 a.m. her time. So we think that just because she is such a committed uh, you know, fan of Wayne's, we're going to let her go first. So Electra, we'll let you go with the first the first question. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I found about you because I was doing a challenge about a Canadian authors, and I was looking for um, uh, for uh, actually a novel that took place in uh, Alberta, and oh, uh, okay. I found your book, and I thought that the the blurb was really exciting, so I bought the book. I was in Quebec at that time, and I found it in English right here. <laughs> it's a used yep. book from uh, That's I good. think it's like a library somewhere, but mm -hmm. anyway. And uh, I kept it, and I didn't read it until in last June. I don't know why. Uh, I read the first chapter, and I was like hooked. So, and I actually read it in one sitting. So, I was really, wow. really hooked. Yeah, and uh, so excited. I just wanted to ask you because at one point in the book, you said like the way the Canadian English speakers pronounce the French name of Leo's. Yes. So how does it sound in English? Because I, I pronounce it the French way, but uh, I'm just wondering, well, like, is it? There are very <laughs> different ways. It's like uh, Deroche, Deroche, Deroches. Um, <laughs> there's many different ways. Um, my mother pronounces pronounces it Deroche because it's her maiden name. Um, oh, so. Yeah, it's it's uh, Deroche because a baseball player or 
is oh. called that. So again, a lot of different ways of pronouncing, and I just let people pronounce it their way, and okay. I try not to correct them because maybe the way I'm pronouncing it is incorrect as well, and you pronounce it differently, possibly. Uh, we uh, would say Leo Desroches. Desroches, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the way how my mother would say it, Leo Desroches. <laughs> Yeah, we're yeah. very picky about names. So when you're gonna sell a book in France, um, you'll have to know that that everyone's come up to you and say Desroches, Desroches. Desroches, yeah. <laughs> and how do you like what you said about like the way you picked his name? How did you come up with the character? What happened in your mind? When, like one day you said, okay, I'm gonna write about someone who's half Cree, half from Quebec, but he lives in Alberta and he's a journalist, but he's also some doing some strange thing because if you read yes. the second chapter i mean i thought i was reading actually i thought first there wasn't actually something wrong with the print i thought i'd change uh books while reading yep. it i said oh my god something wrong about yeah. it. <laughs> and uh, so i wanted to know how did you come up with that like the second chapter is like wow so i talk let me talk about leo first leo is yeah. um loosely based on an editor i had who had a who did have a gambling problem wow. and he did he did disappear and he would show up in my life every few months um, pretending he was going to go get a job somewhere so if i give him money for grab a greyhound or for food but he would use it for gambling and once i stopped giving him money he disappeared from my life and when i was thinking of writing a novel mm-hmm. i just wanted to think about what about whatever happened to this person and that's mm-hmm. where mm-hmm the basics for Leo came from, but then to make it more, um, to give the character more depth, the uh, Cree and French Canadian um, part of it comes from who I am. My mother is French Canadian. My father was Cree and I grew up, uh, as we say in Canada, an assimilated person because my father didn't teach me Cree. My mother didn't teach me French because they wanted us to blend in. They They dealt with a lot of racism as, you know, as uh, people who are different in Western Canada. So they, we learned French in school. We didn't learn any Cree. So I wanted to include that and to give that care a bit more depth and yes, to yes. also relate to Indigenous issues here in, in Canada, especially in Western Canada. And um, also partly I wanted, I read a lot of mysteries uh, featuring Indigenous characters, um, Native American characters, and most of them are written by non-native american um people and they're always set in rural places and this i wanted to set in more of an urban um setting like edmonton where i live uh because you know more than half of the indigenous people in north america live in urban areas they don't live in rural places i mean the the two biggest cities for indigenous people in the united states are la and new york and in, in canada it's edmonton and winnipeg yeah. So I wanted to bring that aspect as well. And also since I, I know Edmonton quite well, because I've lived here for, I was born here, but I've also lived here this time for about 30 years. Um, I know how things function. I know how it feels like in the wintertime, in the fall and various things. So it, it made more sense to set it here. So that's where parts of where Leo came from and parts of where, why I picked the setting um, of Edmonton, because it's my place. Mm-hmm. It's what I know best. Thank you. Who wants to go next? Anybody. anybody. (laughs) 
right. Well, I'll I'll ask my question. I'll if you guys, I'll go ahead and ask one of mine, and then um, oh, what? Uh, Someone. Allison, you raised your hand. Oh, Allison, go ahead. Yourself. Go ahead. Sorry, I started to ask a question and I was muted. I did that. Um, uh, my question was more about, um, so I read this today, <laughs> which I enjoyed very much. And I noticed it was published by University of Calgary Press. And I just wondered um, if you could speak just a little about that, about ending up working with University of Calgary Press as opposed to a more traditionally fiction publisher and mm -hmm. uh, how that kind of came about? Um, I could go over my whole career of um, <laughs> getting publishing deals and losing publishing deals and going for different publishers. There's, that happens to a lot of writers. You get, um, you get dropped, you get, they call it orphaned. Um, they don't like the book proposing. So when I, and I, when I wrote the Red Chesterfield, when I was finished, I was at the point where this is so different. I don't see someone um, actually publishing it I, I, or a more traditional publisher. Um, mm. But I didn't, in a sense, I didn't really write it for that. It was sort of a, something I wrote when I was, I was procrastinating from writing another novel by writing a novel. And that's where <laughs> Chesterfeld came in. Um, and so it was more like, it became as an exercise, but then it was finished. And I was looking for somewhere to publish it. And I think I, I was an award jury or something when you, for a book award. I, I think I read a couple of books from the UFC press and they have a thing called the Brave and Brilliant series, which is their um, odd fiction and poetry. And it's more of a series of, you know, um, books that do, that have a different style or writers who have known for a certain style are trying different things. So I thought, well, I'll send it to them and see what they have to say. And I've got nothing to lose. All they can do is say no. And I did send it to them and they surprisingly said, yes, let's, let's publish it. This is exactly the kind of style of book we are looking for. And I worked with uh, the editor, Aretha Van Herk, who's a well-known writer here in, Ed, in uh, Canada. And it's actually been quite fantastic. I mean, I've worked with big American publishers. I've worked for small Canadian ones and mid-sized ones. And this is probably one of the best publishers I've worked with um, in my career because they've been very supportive despite the fact they don't have piles of money. I mean, the big American one was surprisingly really nice too and really great to work with. But this one has been um, really great because they've been, they're still pushing the book. The book has been out for a year and they're still sort of promoting it in their own certain way. So it, it's mm -hmm. been, it's, it's really nice. So that's how I got to the UFC press. And I'm not sure where I'm going to go next. They've, they've asked what's your next, what's, what's your next book? Maybe we'll publish that, but I'm just going to wait and see, you know, cause this is getting a lot of press and comments. So maybe I could turn this into some way of making more money. Did you ever get back to the novel that you were procrastinating from writing no. by writing this one? <laughs> I, um, I think I finished that one. And then it was supposed to come out. Was, I have another series set in a, in a POW camp in Western Canada for German prisoners. And I th uh, it was that one. And I, and I think that that was finished. That's supposed to come out. I don't know when that's coming out. We've had issues with that. So. 
I, I, a lot of writers actually do this. I've just discovered a lot of writers go, I'm going to procrastinate the novel that I'm supposed to write mm-hmm. with something that I actually want to enjoy to write. So it's kind of interesting how that happens. Mm-hmm. You write like, uh, oh, go ahead, Alison. Uh, you're mute. No, go ahead. You, you can go. Okay. Just how do you process? Do you like like when you say like you don't write when you would like to write? Do you have like a, because in France, many authors always say, well, they get up at like 5 a.m. and they write for like four hours or five hours, and then they just do something else like the rest of the day. Like they have to say they say like they keep saying we have to write daily because if we don't, then it, yeah. we don't get inspiration. We just stop. So they they set up like a routine, like a daily time for writing that, uh, that, that works for some i mean i was like that when i was uh, younger and i i thought i would have to write that way and but i realized that if i don't wait for inspiration but i wait for space in my life or when i think i'm ready to write something um, i sometimes write in binges uh, <laughs> really like over i'll write a, every day for like three weeks and finish something really fast. Um, but I don't really have a routine of um, getting up at five in the morning. That's insane um, for me. <laughs> um, I get up earlier now, but um, I, I don't, and some writers are like that. They have different routines. Some write at night, some write in the, mo- in the morning and some write every day because they have to, but whatever, works for you works for you if you write 500 words every two weeks that's fine if you work you know here and there that's fine i I used to work in advertising and i used to write during my lunch um Mm -hmm. period for like 20 minutes and just get maybe two three hundred words down just because i wanted to do something different and clear my head so I, i personally really haven't written anything new um fiction wise for about two weeks and I probably won't get back to doing something maybe for another week or two because I'm starting some new things in my life. So I've got other stuff to work on. Jolene, you want to go ahead? Yeah, sure. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just going to ask um, about the structure of your book. So both in the structure of like how the chapters came about, your chapters go from like one line or one sentence to, you know, about a page. Um, was that something that you thought of ahead of time? Is it just that that's how it worked out? Was that your plan all along? And then also the layers and the structure of the actual storytelling. I'm just wondering how that all came about and how much you plan ahead and what that process is like for you. Okay. Um, when I started writing The Red Chesterfield, that was part of the exercise I was talking about. I'm going to write a book where every chapter is one page long and one reason why i did that and i may have mentioned in the podcast is i was tired of staying up late reading books and going like i'm going to wait till the next i'll go close it the next chapter and it's 40 pages long so i wanted a book where people can say i'm going to bed oh it's only one page (laughs) and i also wanted to be sort of a visual thing too so it actually turned out well when they published it they actually got a sense of how it visually would work with just one page across like that so that's that was part of the process in the beginning this book is going to have one page for each chapter and sometimes um 
one word or one sentence, uh, whatever was um, the plan, whatever came up. As for the structure and the storytelling, um, I started with the Red Chesterfield in this description and who would find it, the bylaw officer. And then I pretty much went from there. And that was pretty much um, uh, seat of the pants. And I'm, you know, there's a description of writers, you're a plotter, you're a panic, pantser. Plotters are those who plot well in advance and pantsers are those who make it up. And they're, you know, people mix back and forth. Um, and, but for most of my books, I'm pretty much pantsing all the way. I'm just sort of making up as it goes along and I'm picking up things as I write and then maybe think I'll use that later or move it on, things like that. So it's, um, I, I set up to do a few things, but mostly for the plot and the story things, um, I made up as I went along and then I went back and I refined them as you do and try to make them better and try to find more layers to put in and all those things. But all the little sh shocking moments in the book, you go, oh my God, that happened. <laughs> Even in the, the Leo book, the first Leo book that happens in chapter two, that was, I knew something weird was gonna happen. I had no idea what it was gonna actually be. So that was all like, <laughs> and I, I do that, I think, because if I surprise myself when I'm writing it, I, I think I surprise the reader. You do. <laughs> yeah. So it, it definitely worked for you. I, I yeah. really enjoyed this book. I found it delightful and I think it's- Thank you. There's so much to talk about. It's definitely one of my top 10 this year. So thank you so much for writing it. Yeah. it, it I find that a lot of people have been saying that. I'm just going, that, I'm glad people is doing that because there's a lot of stuff I left out. And I was hoping oh. I would leave stuff out so people would fill in the blanks themselves. And I think it was also part of the process where I wouldn't go crazy with descriptions and explaining everything and something ended. So be it. So people can enjoy it that way. Um, I try to do that with all my books. Some of them are bigger than others, but I try to leave it so people can think about things instead of sort of, I beat them over the head with the, this is the book about that. It's more like you can figure out what the book is about on your own. Cause you know, readers are very smart. They're, they read for a living. They, I don't need to beat them over the head. I can explain. I can just have a sentence and for the most part, they get it, I hope. Well, that's what was true about Shauna and I when we were talking about on our podcast when we did our review of the Red Chesterfield it was so funny because we both had completely different opinions mm -hmm. about some of the things and then we both went oh I never thought of it that way but that's what's so brilliant about the Red Chesterfield is you do give us a lot of room to work with in terms of I and I agree Jolene it's definitely in my top it's actually in my top three books actually mm -hmm. for this year because it gives you so much to talk about. And no matter who you talk to, everyone's gonna have a difference of opinion about certain parts of it. So that it's just, it, that's what the brilliance of that book, as small as it is, you think, oh, it's just this little book, but it has the most depth of anything I've read this year. So it's incredible, yeah. I could say something, um, there's people, sorry, who say things to me about the book and in my head, I go like, I didn't think about that. Wow. But I, I, in real world, I go, oh, yeah, I meant to do that. It's all part of that. No, but it happens a lot. It's like, oh, wow, you, you saw something in the book that I did not, I guess, um, mean on the surf, but I, I it, maybe subconsciously, I was probably doing that. And that happens a lot when writing subconsciously, things come out just that you're not noticing. 
So I'm curious about, I, I have a group question in regards to what Rebecca said. We did have different perspectives about the mm-hmm. tea and the jam in the book. Right. So I want to say that I think it is a good intention piece by saying that the tea and the jam is something that is comforting uh, and puts is it M? M to sleep. And Rebecca has a different viewpoint where she thinks it's poison and it is a, or a drug. It's a drug and mm-hmm. the drug is putting M to sleep. So out of the people who have had the opportunity to read it and Wade, please feel free to give us your perspective. Uh, do you, did you see the tea and the jam in a different light? I didn't think it was poisonous. I totally thought it was drugged. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all I've gotten like people people go like he was uh, M was drugged and M wasn't drugged or is this something M was tired or whatever and the tea and the jam I'm not going to say <laughs> what I meant mostly the tea and the jam was a visual thing I was looking for. I, I saw it somewhere, um, an Eastern Europe. It was an East. It's an Eastern European thing where you mix your tea in the, in the jam to make it, uh, or you mix your jam and the tea to make it uh, more sweet instead of uh, um, sugar. I mean, Persians have a different thing where you hold your your um, you hold a, a sugar cube between your teeth and you sip it through the cube to get the sugar that way. And the skill is if you've done it, you keep the sugar cube. It gets smaller and smaller, but it doesn't fall apart until you finish your tea. Um, but I think since um, I was dealing with uh, Yuri, who obviously was uh, uh, Eastern European, I would the tea and the jam, and yeah. So however it's however people see it is however people see it. So it's it's kind of it's kind of neat how people are seeing totally different things, and I, I love that. And there's no right or wrong way to see things in the book. Um, because that's, even if, because I wrote it, because once I finish writing it, it goes out into the world and people's interpretation, it's totally up to them. I'm not going to go out and say, that's wrong. How you read the book is wrong because that's how I went through English high school. I would, I didn't like catching the rye and the English teacher said, how could you not? That's wrong. I just didn't like it. So how people read a book and interpret it, that's, that's, that's fair game question about kind of the writing process in, in in a way because I've always been fascinated and I've never had anybody an author answer this question before but have you worked with an do you work with editors and and what does the editor bring to the process because I I feel like whenever I always love to read the author part at the end where they thank everybody and they always thank their editors and I think what is it exactly the editors do because I, my impression would be they steer you in a direction as needed, but then I think, but the author, it's their work. So I'm not quite sure of the role of an editor. How much it's is hard to, Yeah, it's, it's hard to explain the role. A, a, a good editor is someone who's trying to make the book better. And they do that by maybe um, 
tightening things up or seeing little errors, not errors, but spaces where you can, I think we're not getting everything here. Can you fix it? And they, they explain it quite well. Um, for me, what I, I, I don't have, I don't have beta, beta readers. Um, I don't show my books to anybody until I am ready to send them out for submission. It's just the way I've worked for the last uh, 25, 30 years. I just, I've tried it and it doesn't work for me because everybody's trying to make it sound the same. Uh, but for other people who want to workshop, that's great for them. For me, I work it alone, and then I send it to a uh, publisher, and they assign me an editor. And they, uh, a good editor, will have a lot of suggestions and possible changes um, that make sense. Uh, a bad editor will try to change the story. Um, for the red chest field, there was there was some editing because it's small, and I did a lot of work already. But Aretha just made me. I think we reordered a few things and she, I think the main thing she made me do was to just sort of even tighten things more, but also there was a small expansions, the, the, the chapter on zones of regulation. She said, I think we need to explain what those are. Um, the thing in the yard sale, because you don't have, sh show me more of the yard sale, even though without expanding the chapter too big. And the little things like that. And most good editors will find we'll see what your voice is with the book and just guide you to make it a, a better and read better. And unless you work with an editor for a book long thing, it's really hard to explain the process, but if you have a really good one, it's like, oh, that's, it's, it's, they've made the book better. Do you ever feel though, like, I mean, I guess, is, does the ego ever come into play where you think, uh, no, excuse me, that's exactly what I wanted and you're going down the wrong path because you're the author. You know, does, is there yeah. ever conflict in that way? Oh, oh yeah, you have that with it. You, most good editors, you say, these are the suggestions, but if you don't think um, it's worth it, first explain to me why. If you mm -hmm. can explain why, that's fine. And you say, okay, I get that. And you, most book contracts have, have the right to the author to refuse you know, I don't think I should make that change. Not everything, but I don't think, you know, but I, 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 if you've been in the business, as long as I have, not as just as an uh, author of books, but a, a journalist and a freelancer, you understand that working with an editor will make your stuff better. And you'll look much better because your name is on the book and their name is in it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I mean, especially if you work for magazine articles, there's a lot of editing going on in those. And you go like, I didn't write that. Lead. I wrote that over here, and they said, "No, I'm moving here. It just flows better." So, yeah, editors. Uh, it's it's a totally different profession. I mean, a lot of writers think they can be editors, but it's a totally different profession. And done well, it's it's, it's amazing. Done badly, you you get into a lot of fights. With my <laughs> POW books, I had a lot of uh, issues with the editor because he was trying to change it into something it wasn't. What it wasn't. It wasn't. He was trying to turn into something it wasn't. And I said, no, this is what it is. You can't add your viewpoint because it's not your story. It's my book. So you clashed a bit. But, yeah. you know, I, you know, I can always say, you know, don't you know who I am? Just a film. But it's best just to be most of the time. It's, it's a good, a good, it's a great relationship. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah.
Because sometimes in books, I, I do, I mean, maybe because I read a lot, I read mm -hmm. all the time and read like many, many books. And sometimes I miss the editing. Like I'm like, ah, this, you know, it's too long. It's uh, the creations yeah. or um, like there is a wrong timeline or something is off. And I, always, I'm always thinking, ah, the editor didn't do his job. Like, you know, at one point, yeah. And then yeah, there's yeah, sometimes yeah, you you feel it. Like you feel like this book should have been edited a little bit, like more. I do that too. I, I read a book and go, this is too long, or is this too much? This stuff going on, and but that's just the way it is. And sometimes it's the style. So yeah. yeah. We have one author in France who doesn't like. I mean, doesn't get edited, and uh, his books are like a thousand pages. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I well, <laughs> and we're like, I know, I know, I'm not interested in that. <laughs> it's like, you know, and he talks about himself. All his books are about himself, his life, his birth. He wrote a book, but his birth, a thousand pages. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it does it does happen a writer it's gets famous. very successful. Very famous. Yeah. yeah they get they get very successful and they, yeah, they and they sort cool. of and sometimes it's not the the writer who saying, I don't want to be edited. There's a, could be an intimidation factor from the editor saying this mm -hmm. writer is quite successful. Mm -hmm. So I'll be careful not to edit too much, even though I think that way. And that happens also any sort of um, a medium that involves editing like film. Sometimes you watch film goes like, that's way too long or that's they cut these things out. That happens because, you know, editors may be too afraid to say something or, it just whatever the reasons it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Kira, do you have any questions? I do actually. Um, we, I found the zones of regulation super interesting. Mm -hmm. Like when uh, for M, so we're like when he had the blue and then he described the green and the red. Um, mm -hmm. Were they linked to like some kind of PTSD? And did that go back to like what happened to their parents, which I really want to know what happened to their parents. Yeah, I know everybody does. Yeah, I just, I, I did an event like two two days ago. People were asking the same thing about, what happened to the parents? I said, I don't know. Other <laughs> 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 M and K, no, but no one else does. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And because that's the thing, it's in there. They know. Um, and the, the zones of regulation, I, I, I credit my wife for that because my wife's an occupational therapist. She works with, uh, with children. She's a pediatric occupational therapist. And there's a thing called uh, NRF, the Neural Relationship Framework, where these sort of zones come in. Like this, this child's having a tantrum, so they're in the red zone or they're, they're having trouble swallowing. They're in the red zone, so they can't, they can't function or it's really hard to get them to eat. Or in the blue zone where they're, you know, sort of not really paying attention. And then in the green zone, when it's perfect for, this is a good time to feed your child in the, in the green zone. And they come in various levels. And also it relates to other, not, not just for children, you know, the, these zones and the neural relational framework um, relates to all of us. We all have certain things that set us off, like, you know, um, fingers on a chalkboard throw some people off but don't throw some people off and that's because how you hear things and how you your neurons or your nervous system 
fires that. And this is all my wife's work and her talking about stuff and me subconsciously taking it in and yeah, yeah. going, this is a great part to use these things that you've talked about for the, uh, you know, because she does now work at home and or she's on the phone with clients. Even before COVID, I could hear her talking about these things and and with her colleagues and then figuring out, hey, it works in the book. And when she read it, because she had not re read the book until it was published, she was quite pleased that I actually was listening to her. <laughs> <laughs> and then I picked some up and she's like, oh my God, it's the zones of it's the red, green, and it's a neural relational framework. I said, yeah. It's, <laughs> I really, so, really thought it was cool. Um, yeah, and, and obviously I, I think because... Oh, that's okay. I just thought it was a really cool uh, little insight into M. Yeah. And it made me wonder if it linked back to what happened to their parents, but maybe it's just the way he works through his day. There's a possibility that um, because M knows about these zones that maybe M has as a youth or in some time had to deal with the professional who mm -hmm. made M aware of these zones. So that's probably why they could come up. I don't know what for every reason, but there's possibly, that's probably, I think when I was writing about it, I said, well, there's probably something in M's background where M came through these, had to, someone brought up these zones to, to M and explained it. And that's why they're being used and they're in the story. Although I, there's no point in me, I mean, I could have gone on for like 80 pages about explaining all that, M's background and all, but that's not, wasn't the point of the whole story. So mm -hmm. it makes it more interesting because now you have this sort of where did that come from? So you can make up M's backstory as much as you want. Okay. I was hoping you were going to tell me the backstory, but I... <laughs> well, you got you got flashback one, flashback two, yeah. flashback three. How many flashbacks? I forget. There's there's flashbacks, and that's that's all you get. And there <laughs> was all... one part where you said uh, where I think it was M said there that uh, he and K had a life that J didn't know about, and so then I was like, well, what the What's that? Okay. So, and I think I think what they think Jay doesn't know about. I think Jay actually knows more than they they think Jay does because yeah. that's. I think that's partly from me. I'm the I'm the youngest of four, um, and I think they may have tried to keep things from me, but I was quite aware of stuff was going on. I just didn't bring it up until it was necessary to say something, as Jay does near the end of the book. He's actually. Mm -hmm becomes a voice of reason going, you guys are idiots, snap out of it. Yeah, I think Jay's pretty smart, actually. Yep, yep, Jay's just, they, they don't give Jay that much credit. Yeah. Well, I wanna ask the question that, because Sean, since Shauna asked the group, for those of you who read it, because she and I talked about who our favorite characters were. So who were, for those of you who read the Red Chesterfield, who, were, who was your favorite character in the book? Because Shauna, um, who was your favorite character? Do you remember who you said now? I think it was Yuri's wife is who I chose. Yeah. yeah. I know, which was weird to me because M is my, he was my favorite. <laughs> I just loved M so much. M would be my favorite as well. Yeah. And yeah. Why, why, yeah. Did you, why did he stand out for you? I liked his quirkiness. <laughs> I liked, I mean, all of the characters were quirky, but he just had a way of, leading that and he was just a great main character to kind of bring that story together I just thought it was we were inside his head you know and I thought I really liked it so yeah mm -hmm. 
Don't ask me which one of my favorite characters. <laughs> could be could be pajama man because it could be almost the closest person to me sometimes. <laughs> Walking outside in my pajamas. No, but there's I'm glad people well M is the main character, so obviously a lot of people are gonna like M. But there, you know, I wanted to populate the, the book with interesting characters that people um, you don't have to find them likable, but they're intriguing for you that you pay attention to them, even if they're only there for a couple pages or a short period of time. Right. And that, I try to do that with all my books. When with the Leo books, I have this whole population of journalists and things, and I wanted to, to people to realize that they have lives outside of the newspaper, and all these characters are big enough, and that's. Um, what I try to do in all my books, even the secondary characters, you can think, what are they? Where are they going home after after work, or what do they do, or these kind of stuff? And I don't like. I mean, I probably have made that mistake in my time, but I try to make my all my all my secondary characters and even small people on the street who have a couple lines of dialogue um, as real as possible, if you can. And that's hard to do sometimes because. You don't have a lot of space. You don't want to go in this person's whole life story because then you got a thousand pages on how some guy was, was given birth. And I bet he doesn't even talk about his mom. <laughs> <laughs> I was born. It's like, no, you were, your mom carried you for nine months and you were birthed and there's professionals involved in the room. Um, so yeah, you, that's, that's, I, that's why I, I really try hard to make all my characters to be people. And they are, I mean, yeah well that's definitely really one of the reasons why yuri's wife was my favorite because i didn't first off i didn't want to pick one of the main three main characters and it's just kind of like well that's that would be a given and i want to be different so (laughs) uh in regards to yuri's wife she's compassionate towards m and she is in this interestingly weird relationship uh in regards to yuri sleeping with her sister and her being okay with this whole situation it was just kind of like you know i would love to take a a page from her book and just never be that jealous about my boyfriend being with another woman kind of deal (laughs) but you know i don't know if that would be a healthy or unhealthy type of thing either so yeah i I just wrote it just as it as it was it's, it's something that happens and that's the way it is and there's other relationships that's later on in the book i don't know if everybody's read the book i gave things away at an event a couple of days ago where people didn't know that um but there's another relationship it just it's just there and that's the way it is and everybody's fine with it there's yeah. no judgment it's just the way it is i mean it's hard you know i don't have that relationship but i'm not that you know i'm not we don't have that kind of relationship um, but other people do, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. I didn't want to throw any judgments and just said, oh, this is it. This is just as it is. And I didn't want to go into explaining it to how it started because then I'm, I'm taken away from what's happening in the present of the book. Yeah. I wanted to ask you something that, that that shows up more prominently in the Leo series, but it does show up in the Red Chesterfield too, which is this idea of the characters being indigenous. But but I wanted to know, and I think it kind of, from what you said, parallels your own life, which is that Leo, for example, did what wasn't really fully in touch with who he was as an indigenous person. Mm-hmm. And 
even the family in the Red Chesterfield, they, they're, they're indigenous because you mentioned it at some point, but it's sort of towards like the middle, I think, of the book where you don't even quite sort of realize it or think about it. Yeah. And so I just wanted to know like your own personal journey, if you can talk about it, your identity yeah. and that kind of thing. Well, um, like Leo, I, I came, I knew we were indigenous. We didn't connect much. We didn't go to the culture. Um, we visited my dad's, ho dad's hometown a few times. Uh, but it was not something as part of our lives. And that's just part of the way Canada is. I mean, we're still having indigenous um, hope, issues with indigenous people and racism and violence and things like that. Um, but it, it did become more something I would be more proud of and research more and then understand that even though I wasn't connected to my culture and I grew up in an urban center, um, that's just another valid story of being what an indigenous person is in North America. There's many people who are like me. And then, yeah, as you can see, I don't, I, I'm, I'm white, I'm pretty pale, but I, you know, I'm called white-coated because um, I, I, I take after my mother. And, but my father's skin wasn't as, as dark as some. It's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum because um, there's been a lot of um, marrying and in marriage and all these things between indigenous people and settlers. Um, in the Red Chesterfield, I specifically did not mention they were indigenous because um, this is one of the things I, I worked out from the beginning uh, because I wanted to people's, especially in Canada, people's biases about how they read a book. I wanted them to start reading the book and build in their mind who the character is mm -hmm. and then just have one or two lines somewhere in the book which will change it and say, these people are indigenous. And so you actually go, ooh, wait a minute, this, I'm reading this, uh, was there something I missed back there? And it's also maybe a commentary on how sometimes Indigenous books are published. It's like uh, page one, like Indigenous person walks down street and things like that. You, you come out with the Indigenous in the beginning so everybody knows it's an Indigenous book without, you know, and then they get a viewpoint of what indigenous person is like. So this is part of what the Red Chest feels like. And also, again, still there's a lot of books about indigenous people which aren't set in urban areas, which don't show indigenous people as people who just have jobs and careers and lives. There's all these other things, you know, with uh, uh, trauma and uh, suffering and victimhood and living poor and poverty. And I just wanted to challenge that a bit. And I always try to challenge that um, based on... Um, my life and I don't want to dismiss the history of the bad things that happened and things that are happening now, but I just wanted to show a different viewpoint of indigenous people in Canada. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a challenge, but I just want to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Allison, go ahead. I just wondered if the field itself was something that came to you that you saw one day that you like where did the actual red chester fields kind of come to your mind from well uh, excuse me i've had that image in my head for a long time a red chester field in, in, a, in a ditch and i'm using i use the word chesterfield i discussed this in the podcast um chesterfield was how we used to say in this growing up in the 60s 70s and part of the 80s that's how we, we used the word chesterfield instead of couch or sofa it's a very canadian term in that sense, very 
Uh, it's changed over time as we got more exposed to American culture and sofas and we got more TV and things like that, but it was always a Chesterfield. So that's where the, the word comes from. Um, but the, the red Chesterfield is an image I've had in my brain for a while. I just a red Chesterfield in a ditch and I thought, well, I'll, I'll use that in the story somewhere. And I have a lot of those images that I haven't used or that I will use or that come up um, in the in the book. The foot thing, the severed foot is another thing that popped in the book. I popped it in the book um, seemingly randomly, but then um, I realized for the last 10 years um, off the coast of British Columbia, of Western Canada, there's always, there's every year there's a severed foot in a shoe that washes up on shore and the police go like, ah, it's no big deal. It happens. They never explain why. And so it's like, <laughs> where did this foot came from? So that's where that image of the foot came from, from <laughs> that, from those things happen. And this still happens. A foot is found on the beach near, near, um, near Vancouver, just north of Vancouver. And go, wow, a separate foot. Must be the murder. It's like, oh, that's nothing. You guys have sharks up there or something? Like, what the heck? <laughs> I don't know where it comes. They don't explain. They never explain. They, they never explain where it comes from. There's never a, a scientist goes. Yes, it comes from sharks spitting up, or just it, it's just something that it's, always, it's usually always in some sort of running shoe. And, yes. and it's just one of those weird things that happens that it just popped in my head and I use it. And that happens all the time when I'm writing weird things or stuff that I've experienced. Whatever. Um, happens in my head so I always had the excuse that doesn't matter what I'm doing whether I'm watching tv or asleep or playing video games or whatever I'm doing I'm always writing because something will come out of that may come out of that that experience I'm experiencing okay so does that mean the bridge in Edmonton did you have a some kind of because that plays a a major part in one of the Leo books, that bridge. And mm -hmm. in fact, when you were writing about it, I, I, I was telling Shauna, I looked it up online because you described it really interestingly, but I wanted to see it for myself. So was did the bridge play some part that needed to be in one of your books at some point? Or is it just so iconic? Well, the, the, the high level bridge up to the big, long, ugly black bridge. Everybody goes, oh, it's big, long, ugly black bridge. But it's very iconic. It's been here since the city 1907 or something. It's just this. Oh massive image that you can't miss is in the, over the river valley and it is a very iconic part of edmonton that it's always there um there used to be a far a waterfall going off it every so often but the th problem is it's a very high bridge and it has been used it is used on many occasions as a suicide spot and now they've made changes in the last few years to prevent that but it's still used as a spot for people to um, jump off into the river and it's a long way down it's it's higher than Niagara Falls so it doesn't look high but when you get on it and a lot of people won't cross it won't walk across it because they're too afraid of heights and in Edmonton in Edmonton there's a very demarcation like the north end and the south side and there's a lot of people who from the north end won't go to the south side and people from the south side won't go to the north end unless they have to and when I talk about the north end, I'm not talking about downtown. I'm talking about the north end. So the river makes a major de demarcation point. And the high-level bridge is one of the places where we cross. Edmonton, we have, we have a big river, and we have a lot of bridges to cross. And that's, that's an iconic one. I mean, you can't miss it. You come to Edmonton, you go, that's an ugly bridge. But it's a, it's a classic railway 
prairie bridge and it's big and it's ugly but it's just it's iconic yeah thanks so uh rebecca and i were talking about this idea that the red chesterfield could replace one of the books that high schoolers read and there would be papers upon papers of different perspectives and it would mm -hmm. really give english teachers the ability to read something other than the quote unquote same doneness of what current authors they read in high school. Would you ever be prepared to help come up with a uh, lesson plan for the Red Chesterfield in a school setting? I think the University of Calgary would probably be, could would probably want to be involved in that because they're yeah. universities they probably have ideas on how to do that i mean i could help somehow um but if it sells a pile of books to our schools that's fine i mean i get that people want to read more modern books my daughter's in english in grade 11 she's studying lord of the flies come on in, last year is to kill a mockingbird and i understand it's a powerful book in the united states but here in canada it's 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 old let's move into the more contemporary books i mean mine is i'm great it'd be, it would be mine but there's a lot of other books especially canadian ones that um would be great if people want to but if people want to do a lesson plan i read the ufc press would probably they can figure that out they're they're university okay i want them to do that though and i want to read the papers that's all i'm saying is i want to be part of the class and i want to read what everybody says because to do an analysis of that book i just think it would be fascinating because again everybody has a different take on it so i would love to read other people's take on it yeah it'd be great and high school kids would like it because it's short <laughs> and it's, you know one chapter oh this is this is, a, this is what we're reading oh awesome it's really short we're done but so. <laughs> I've read it three times. And so I feel like, you know, again, the first time I, when I read it, I just remember because of the red herrings, I remember thinking like, wait a minute, what? And then I went back and read it again. And then I read it again. So um, each time you get a little bit more out of it and it just makes the discussion really fun. So anyway, cool. yeah. yeah, we just, I keep repeating that, but it's true. So cool. All right, we have about nine minutes left, so I want to give everybody a, a chance to, um, you know, if you have any question, any questions left over that you wanted to ask, then here is your last chance to rapid fire them. Because I have one, but I'll go last. If somebody wants to go. Anybody? Okay. Oh, go That's ahead, a question, um, but just... So I, when I bought the book, I asked, told them what I was looking for and asked them where to find it because I wasn't sure where it would be shelved and it was in the mystery section. And I just thought, like I knew, I knew about the book originally from hearing Sheila Rogers interview you on the next chapter. So I already, my first um, learning about the book was that it was kind of a challenge to the tropes of mystery books and crime books. So I knew it was, you know, not straight up mystery, but I wonder if people do buy it from the mystery section and then get really confused or they don't like it. You know what I mean? <laughs> because usually you, you were expecting something and you've taken a lot of those things and kind of turned them on their heads. And I just, I don't, I don't know what the question is, but I just wonder 
um, in terms of, of slotting it into a genre? I think it's it's slotted into mystery because that's because of the Leo books and my other books were, you know, traditionally crime mystery books in that yeah. sense. And I'm known mostly as a mystery crime writer, even though I write other things. And yeah. So that's probably why. I mean, I, I, I wanted to push some buttons in the crime industry, and I do that already with essays on, you know, too many non-Indigenous crime writers writing Indigenous characters. Um, and if it bothers them, I don't really care anyway, because <laughs> I'm that kind of person. I don't, I don't really care. You know, you want to, let's have a, let's have a, a panel about it and we'll talk about it and try to sell some books. But a lot of the crime writers that I know who've read it, they go like, yeah, this is kind of, this is neat. This is, this is, I like what you've done with it. And some of them go like, I, I, I would like to do something different because I'm stuck with my, you know, seventh book that I have to fulfill, even though I enjoy that, I just want to push some boundaries, but I can't because I have a name and I have a sort of name, but it's not one of those where I'm stuck somewhere. I can, I can mess around and this makes it even better. I can do even different stuff and goes, Oh, Wayne doing something weird again. Oh, all right. Which is normal for me. Oh, your dad's doing something weird again, says my daughter and she walks away. <laughs> so it's, it's fine. You could do a Chesterfield series. Yeah, no, there's no, um, there will be no sequel. <laughs> uh, I did, I did, I did notice something. There's an, I'm gonna, I have an idea for another book. And I'd said just on Wednesday, it will be in the same universe oh. as the Red Chesterfield, <laughs> but it won't be, you won't see J or K or M. This is gonna be the same universe. It's not like, it's like the Marvel universe, but Doctor Strange won't be coming into this one. <laughs> When I, Go ahead. I, when I, I actually, uh, I met a friend from uh, Quebec and that's why I started to come to Quebec to fly to Quebec like twice a year. And that's when I found all those books because it, uh, in Quebec, but in, um, in Montreal, we can find uh, books in English. And then mm -hmm. I started to find more and more books about uh, Canadian indigenous authors because I usually I, I read uh, all the author, indigenous authors, but they were primarily uh, Native Americans, but not Canadians. Mm -hmm. So I found about all the author, these authors, but my surprise and my friend told me they were not translated into French, but there is Quebec, I mean, uh, French Canadians, and they cannot mm -hmm. read your books because they're not translated. Yeah. And that was really weird to me. Like I thought you could find any authors like, you know, uh, translated from one language to another, like the French Canadians presenting into English. And, uh, but now, but now things are changing. Um, mm -hmm. We have like two or three publishers in France who, are, who started to actually translate books from indigenous authors. Uh, you know, you have the famous ones, uh, uh, Cherry de Malin or uh, Tommy mm -hmm. Orange and uh, yeah. Catherine Vermeid. And they're, they're starting to do that. But it was weird for me as a French person to come and just, I look at my books and most of my books are in English. Like, you know, I yeah. know so many of you guys, but you're not translated into French. And I'm like, is it weird that even Canadians don't think about like, oh, we should translate because, you know, there's a huge population that speak French and maybe interested in you guys. And uh, that's why you said indigenous authors are not very well, you know, famous or like, like we only know stories about what you said, like the, uh, like, like in actually in the United States, I mean, we uh, first we only heard about uh, the reservations, 
you know, mm-hmm. the, the one people living on the rest never like in the cities like Tommy Orange with Alchemy in California or because we thought they were all like, I mean, some people even think that they had vanished, you know, you didn't have any uh, Indians left in America. But um, I, I, I lived in Montana for a while and they have a res and I used mm. to go to res and the Blackfeet res. And uh, I was very surprised, like uh, many Americans don't know anything about uh, Indians, they call themselves Indians. But um, mm. so, yeah, to me, it's interesting that now French uh, uh, editors are publishing your books and no French Canadians do that too, because they, they, they see us in France reading your books, but they don't get it, you know, in Quebec. Yeah. And so it's so weird, like, uh, so I really hope that, you know, it's like you're going to be translated next year and it's great because I think it helps actually um, Canadian too, you know, yeah. to learn about your, your life. And, uh, but to so me, it was weird. I mean, it was weird for me because I'll, <laughs> But that's what French people think, that we all think that French Canadians speak English. We do in France. And they don't. I mean, my, no. my best friend doesn't speak English. I mean, she understands it, but she cannot read it. And for me, it was like, wow, because you live like surrounded by English speak, speaking people, but you don't speak English. And said, no, because that's how we keep our French, you know, mm-hmm. like we don't learn it so that we don't, you know, we're don't not like told, you know, by, uh, yeah. so it's, but. Well, so she told me about the books, um, like Lee Miracle, the few books mm-hmm. that actually they were studi- studying in high schools too, mm-hmm. but they're just like one or two books, that's it. Yeah. Um, so, well, yeah. a part of it is the, the Quebec has its very own popular culture. Quebec okay. has its own TV programs. It has its own publishing. They yes. have its own music stars in Quebec who sell millions of records in Canada. We're in the rest of Anglo Canada. We're un- we're almost unaware of that. There's this whole culture in Quebec, popular culture that we're almost completely aware of. That is hugely successful. They have a star system. They have you know they have their own. They have. I, I went to Montreal a few years ago, and there's authors who've sold half a million copies in Quebec alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. So that, that's part of it because they don't need to translate some of us in Quebec because they have their own mm-hmm. but it's changing now because changing. people want more more yes. different things and that's 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 a good thing for everybody all, all across the country mm-hmm. it's definitely like an awakening I mean I feel it too mm-hmm. when I go to the uh, bookstores in Montreal or in Quebec it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's a lot different yes and yeah. that actually now the um yeah the Quebec um uh Publishers didn't work with the French ones either. They're totally different, but now they're starting to work actually together. Yeah. But yeah. even for us French people, we didn't have any um, a Canadian author, French Canadian authors published in France for a long time. It was just a different world, and now it's all melting. I mean, it's just yeah, that's yeah. good. Well, Shauna, can I ask one last question really quick? I just want to check with Wayne to see if you can talk about anything that you're writing right now. That, and when can we expect something from you? Do we have any idea at all? Well, the next one that may come out will be a quite traditional mystery. It'll be part of my POW thing, which I wrote um, years ago. It was supposed to come out. First one came out in 2016. The next one was supposed to come out in 2017. And that hasn't come out. So that's... It's, Totally different, very traditional mystery. Um, I have another book that I finished while I was sort of writing the Chesterfield 
and all the other stuff, which is a little more traditional, but also sort of like, sort of like a, a merge of weirdness of Red Chesterfield with um, traditional kind of mystery. It's longer, it's not the chapters. Um, and the uh, University of Calgary Press has said, can, you, can we look at it? And I got an email from another press saying, can we look at it? And I'm just sort of deciding what to do. Um, I have another, I, I have a couple of other ideas for books. Um, the one of them set in the universe. Um, since you guys are, some of you are American, some of you are French and some of you are Canadian, will have no, may know or may not, uh, may have no idea about the Stanley Cup playoffs, how they were in a little bubble here in Edmonton. And so they called it Hub City. So that's the title of the, another book I'll work on, which will be the universe called the Hub City, which will probably take place in that bubble of hockey players and oh. strange weirdness that was there. That I was actually able to access through various ways I'm able to access these things. Because <laughs> I'm from Edmonton. I can do that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. So, well, we look yeah. forward to it. We look forward to something, something new, and we'll be excited to read uh, what, what comes next. And then, like I said, Leo, Leo books will be coming out in French um, within the next year or two. And all like all three of them. Yes. Also, tell all your friends in France because they'll be distributed in France. And, and hopefully... I'm going to order the Red Chesterfield. I can do it. So, I'm yeah, gonna okay. Do it. I actually am doing it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> No, I've already, I bought a copy of it. When is it going to be translated? <laughs> We're working on it. Actually, there was a publisher in Montreal who, who, when I won the award, Arthur Ellis Award, who was reading it and they're interested. So maybe that'll happen as well. Yeah, perfect. I just want to say, Wayne, that the highest compliment you could probably ever earn as an author is that Shauna, Miss Tightwad over here, actually bought the Red Chester Field because she never buys books, but she bought the, and it shocked me because she had read my copy yeah. and then she bought her own. So that is high praise indeed. <laughs> What's the price in the U.S.? 48, no, probably like $9 in the U.S. And so here it's like 48, I don't know. But thanks it's for buying nice. it. I mean, even if people take a library, and I'm used to having access to things all the time, and then it's like, oh well, if I want to read this more than once, then I should buy a copy. I still make money from because I'm in Canada from the public lending right. So I mean, every oh. every year I get a check for at least um, three thousand dollars from people taking my books out from libraries. So wow. I don't care if you buy them. It doesn't happen in the United States, but it happens here in Canada and probably in France and the UK. Yeah. Um, so if you take my books out from the library, that helps me too. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. It's free money every year. It's like, wow, that trick is yeah. <laughs> But thank it's it's great. Thank you for. I'm not sure how long we go, but thank you all yeah. for thank you connecting and enjoying my books from everywhere. I'm international now. I hope to see you in France. We know. Do you know about the French festival, uh, America Festival America in Vincennes, close to Paris? It takes, there, I've, yeah, you heard about it. I've heard. No, I heard about there. They wanted to send me last year to oh. Lyon. Lyon. For, yeah. There's a big, big crime festival. Yeah, the crime festival, and uh, we're one. Um, that takes place in Paris, near Paris, mm -hmm. every two years. It was supposed to happen this year, but with uh, COVID, yeah. 
was a well, next year hopefully and i know the the guy who does it and i will mm -hmm. talk to him about you to invite you excellent because you know yeah. i can i can get yeah. grants grant money to travel there once mm -hmm. covid goes away yeah and the one wasn't canceled because of covid it was just canceled because they wanted to wait till the first leo book came out so it had something oh, yeah. to promote mm -hmm. but you yeah. have to call friends yeah I've been there. I want to go back again. <laughs> well, well, we just friends. <laughs> we just want to thank everybody seriously for participating with us today. And and Wayne, thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. Um, I think you you've got fans, as you say, international fans now, um, especially uh, with all of us. So thanks again, and uh, we look forward to what comes next. Thanks so much. Thanks everybody. Thanks everybody. Good night. All right.